So, uh, good afternoon. I wish I were able to do this in person, but obviously it goes without saying it wouldn't be safe. Um, let me start by thanking Richard and the organizers of, of this seminar series for inviting me to, to share with you some of the research that my group carries out. We are based at the Department of Zoology, and we examine senescence or aging, as it's often referred to, across the tree of life. And um, we do work with mathematics and ecological and evolutionary modeling quite a bit. Um, I've tried to tone that down a little bit for this presentation, but obviously if you've got questions about the stats or the maths, very happy to, to answer them. Before I jump into it, I would like to reveal the take message, and that is that senescence or aging is not universal. It does happen in humans. But um, we are among the very few species that conform an exception to the rule. And this is big news because for a very long time, as you will see today, senescence was believed to be universal, to be found no matter where you look at it. And because it's a really old question, no pun intended, I thought it would be fitting to start by showing you a, a piece of art that of the uh, fountain of eternal youth. I think that this really uh, encapsulates the main research that has been paying attention to the causes of aging. We biologists, medical scientists, evolutionary biologists as well, have been obsessed with trying to find where the fountain of eternal youth lies ahead. And um, the myth behind this was that the lucky one to find it and to either bathe in it or to drink from it would show um, eternal youth, which is formally defined as a increase or at least stability in your vital functions. This is a little bit of a summary of the research that we conduct in my, in my group. And other than the word senescence from the Latin senecere, which means to become decrepit, you'll find other words such as plants, and so one of the, please, one of the efforts that I'm going to try to carry out today with, with the audience here is to emphasize the message that um, humans are not the center of it all. That obviously, we've got a strong emphasis in trying to prolong lifespan, in prolong health span as well. That is the years of good quality of life. But uh, we may learn one or two or more things by looking around and stop looking into our belly button to look for that fountain of eternal youth. So senescence is one of the oldest questions that philosophers and, and, and researchers have looked into. Um, the first written recording of senescence goes back to 350 BC, and it was first formulated that we know of by, of course, of all Aristotle, who back in the day apparently wrote a text saying that uh, if you want to live long and prosper, which of course back in the day was no more than 35 to 40 years, keep that in perspective, you would do well in going for long walks every day and in not eating too much. I'm gonna to touch on that not eating too much later on in this talk. From our demographic perspective, that is in terms of how individuals and in populations may suffer or not from senescence, Senescence is defined as what happens between when you first become an adult until when 99% um, of individuals in a cohort die out. So 
in a depiction, you can see senescence here. You can see that uh, fertility in blue is declining after a main peak of reproduction with age, and that the risk of mortality, that is the odds that you don't survive to the next year, increase quite exponentially with age. Um, of course, you can see that the mortality risk is quite high early on, but that's not what senescence is looking at. Senescence is just looking at what happens between when you first become an adult until you die off. Okay. So in essence, it's really important for many very reasons. One of them is that how old you are and in what country you're based and even what gender or what socioeconomical background or what neighborhood you live will affect how big a loan you can get from a bank. And all of that is based on actuarial sciences, which uh, predicts how likely you are to die. If you're likely to die young, then you're quite unlikely to be able to return the, the bank loan and the interest. So your interest will go higher. But senescence is also equally important for uh, species across the tree of life, not just humans. Think about what you had for breakfast this morning. You probably had some orange juice. You probably had some added fruits coming from the plant kingdom. Perhaps yesterday for dinner, as I did, you had a lovely bottle of, of, of French wine. And the productivity that is brought to you by the plant kingdom, by the animal kingdom and other kingdoms, can be affected by senescence. If a species senesces very quickly, chances that that species will remain productive, be that oranges or pineapples or whatever have you that you're eating, that will go down and you will not benefit from that as much. So how much and how long species live is key to the ecosystem services that species provide to us humans. And it also has really important consequences for, again, back to we humans, how long you live, obviously, under what conditions you're going to be living, those are the, the years of health span. And also, very importantly, how long will society demand that you work, not just in terms of years, but also how many hours per day, how many days per week? For instance, a couple of years ago, um, a rather controversial, but I think scientifically sound statement was put forward by Professor Jim Papel, the previous director of the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research and one of my previous supervisors. He, he had observed that longevity in Germany was really skyrocketing. Um, and as a consequence of that, he saw no, no purpose in compacting the working life to 40, 48 hours per week. Instead of what he proposed is, you know, work fewer hours per day, work fewer hours per week, but work for longer. So retire at a later time. So you can imagine that uh, was not very well received in the German media. But um, there you go. It's the type of consequences and logical uh, thought that underlines pr the prolongation of lifespan in humans that we are currently um, witnessing in many countries, not only Germany. One of the key questions in senescence, of course, is why does it happen? Why has senescence evolved? Now, I'm going to point you out to this paper by Metzdevev from 1990, and um, one can say 1990 happened yesterday, but in fact, it's, it's uh, 30 years ago now. Medvedev made a really nice review of how many theories have been put forward to try to define and to understand what are the mechanisms for why senescence or aging happens. And at that point, 30 years ago, he counted 300 theories. If you do the same exercise nowadays, you're much likely to find probably close to four digit numbers. Still, in order to understand the main theories of senescence, I thought that it would be interesting to, to just discuss them very briefly before we jump into, into the research that I want to present today. The first one 
is mutation accumulation. So the mutation accumulation theory states that organisms become more decrepit simply because out of all the mutations that can happen in your, in your, in your body, some of them will be deleterious. They will affect your performance negatively. They will affect your fitness. And the genetic machinery that we have evolved, that we have in place to try to fix, to revert, or to cancel out those negative mutations, doesn't act fast enough. So the rate of mutation of negative mutations is much higher than the rate at which we can fix them or null them. As a consequence of that, individuals that are lucky to get to live long accumulate those mutations, and therefore they become more decrepit. The second one is called antagonistic pleiotropy. And this is a really interesting theory that has been proven to be true in quite a few animals, humans among them. It's based on the idea that genes can carry out more than just one function. That those genes are called pleiotropic genes. A given gene can have a function early on in your life, and the same gene can have a different function later on in your life. It's been shown with evolutionary models that a gene that has a positive effect in your lifespan when you're young will be selected for by natural selection, even if the same gene has got negative effects on your fitness, that in principle, natural selection should try to wipe out. So one of the reasons why antagonistic pleiotropy explains in essence evolves is if a gene has got two functions, one is positive early on, but negative later in life, the negative ones will become pretty much uh, blind to natural selection. And that's one of the reasons why and how senescence can evolve. The third main classical theory of the evolution of senescence is that of the disposable soma. And the disposable soma states that most organisms, not plants, as I will show you in a second, but most organisms can be broadly categorized into a germ line namely your gonads, your reproductive organs, and soma, the soma line, which is everything else, everything else in your body that, that helps you mate and pass on your genes to the next generation. Investments in energy, which is obviously a limited resource, into soma or into germ is inefficient. And as a consequence of the cumulative accumulation of these errors in terms of how energy is accumulated through time, the individual tends to become less optimal than it ought to be if you had an effective machinery. So as a consequence of that, again, if you live long, you become more decrepit. What's common to these three theories, other than the fact that um, historically they've been very well accepted among the aging research and the aging community? Well, they all expect, they all predict that senescence is universal. And against the backdrop of that is the fact that while we know that senescence has got a genetical, a genetic basis, here you have a uh, study looking at what happens to the survivorship in the y-axis as a function of time or age in the x-axis of different cohorts of the same fly species for which one has been treated genetically to knock down a specific gene. If you knock down a specific gene, you can see in the black line, the cohort will get to live longer up to the uh, age of 90 days instead of 80 days. So senescence does have a genetic basis, but it also has 
an environmental basis. It also has an ecological basis. Where you live, where you eat, who you hang out with can affect how long and in what conditions you will get to live. And one of the reasons or one of the ways in which that can be demonstrated is with calorie restriction theory. Aristotle, I will remind you, already pointed out to us that if you go for long walks and you don't eat too much, you'll get to live long. If you watch out your diet or if you reduce the amount of calories that you intake, if you restrain, if you restrict your calorie intake, you get to live longer. This uh, has been shown in mice. It has also been shown in flies. It has been shown in bacteria as well. This field of calorie restriction, however, is a bit controversial. There's been a few studies that have shown for the restless monkey that uh, it either has no effect or that it has a positive effect. So we can talk about that later if you would like. But the main thing is the understanding that genetics, that is nature, and the environment, that is nurture, come together in almost like a perfect marriage to uh, shape the age-based trajectories of mortality and fertility, your fitness components, in other words. Still, these three theories, and particularly one of the fathers of these three theories, Hamilton, they are so strong and they're so sure in their prediction that senescence should be universal that Hamilton, back in 1966, published in a peer-reviewed manuscript, senescence is inevitable. It will be found even in the farthest reaches of the universe. And the quote continues, also observed even in the most bizarre of creatures across the tree of life. Well, today I want to disprove that fact to you. Today I want to show you that humans are not the rule, as in many other aspects of science. So what it means is that this pattern that you can see here, which is what we humans follow, Increase in fertility and then a drastic decline. And increases in mortality with age is not really what every creature across the tree of life follows. We published a paper in Nature a few years ago where we show evidence for this. There are some species that do follow up the predictions on the evolution of senescence by Hamilton. I'll give you some examples here, but I'll dive into them in a second. So you've got uh, modern human populations such as Japanese, you've got hunter-gatherers, and you've got other non-human species such as guppies and fulmars. They do show an increase in uh, mortality and a decline in fertility with age. There are other species such as gymnosperms like pine trees, the crocodile, uh, the, the, the non-crocodile, and the yellow-belly marmots in Yellowstone National Park US were the increases in mortality do happen, but fertility also increases with age, which is something that it's not predicted by the classical theories of senescence. Let's flip that around. There are also other species like uh, the desert tortoise, oaks, brown algae in the intertidal of, of the Atlantic Ocean that show a decline in mortality while also have an increase in fertility as they grow older. So what this means effectively is that there are some species where senescence not only does not happen, but fitness components, which is what natural selection acts upon, by the way, improve with age. So just like a good bottle of French wine, the older, the better. If you're interested in that document, in that publication, 
you can take a look at that. In the interest of time, I'm going to jump very quickly through this. I will just mention that we looked at this paper in 48 different species, and that we found that senescence is, is a continuum. Some species do undergo senescence, some species don't. Some species have a flat projection of mortality risks and fertility through age, and it takes all different kinds of combinations of fitness components. So I'm just going to jump through all of this. And I'm just going to make a call for how important it is to understand the mechanisms. For a long time, the effort on understanding the mechanisms has been placed on why we senesce, why humans senesce. And let us assume that everything else that looks like a human, mammals, birds sometimes, will also senesce. But what we show in this paper is that we need to start thinking about how come that other species don't. And specifically, even if it might sound like science fiction, what can we learn from them? in order to prolong our lifespan, and more importantly, prolong our health span, the years of good quality of life. So some of the approaches that we take in my group um, are primarily inspired in three different pillars of science to tackle these questions. One has to do with using big data on the demographies of multiple species in plants and animals. The other one has to do with following individuals in their natural populations through a long time. We've been following populations of uh, birds, of trees, of fungi for up to 15 years now, by the way. And another one has to do with understanding the molecular basis of why some species undergo senescence and others escape from it. So I'm going to tell you a brief, a brief overlook about how we're tackling this question from uh, a big data point of view. All of this work is, in a first instance, it was supported by the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research, where I'm still affiliated. And you've got uh, there a photograph of the first group that started building the databases, Compadre, which contains demography of plants, and Comadre, which contains demographic information for animals, humans included, back in Rostock, Germany. And this research is now based here in, in, in my group at the Department of Zoology. So what we have done in this project is for the last over 10 years, really, it's been, it's been quite a few years now, we have been following and archiving peer review publication that contains information on the demography, that is the rates of survival, the rates of development, and the rates of reproduction of animals and plants. What you can see on the top left is a world map of the GPS locations where the data were collected by other researchers around the globe, as well as by people in my group and myself. What you can see on the bottom is the amount of publications that contain the demographic information that we specifically target to address these questions for plants and for animals. You can see that uh, it, it really has increased in a cumulative manner quite drastically. So together we have got access to thousands of records on the natural population dynamics and the information about survival chances and reproductive rates of individuals in their natural environments. The way in which this information is archived is a matrix array. And I promise that this will be perhaps the first or the second only time that I'll talk about mathematics. If you're interested in these models, I'm happy to talk with you uh, later. The main gist of these models is that they classify individuals in a population according to some stage. So how old you are is typically one of them. And in them, we track survival, 
development and reproduction. From those, we can then apply some algorithms that we've been developing in my group and with some collaborators to precisely look at the shape of mortality and fertility and to evaluate how many species do adhere to the prediction by Hamilton on, yes, you should senesce, and which ones don't. Now, when you're in grad school, they typically teach you the rule of one in a presentation. The rule of one is that thou shall only contain, that thou shall only show a figure with one main object in one's life. Here I'm breaking the rule of one big time. And the purpose of this is to try to overwhelm you, if I may, with the amount of information that we have. What you have here is, I think it was 360 plants and animal species, okay? Each little, each square has a color in the background. The background has been classified according to the color of the taxonomic group to which that species belongs. So you've got in light blue, for instance, you've got algae. In uh, turquoise, you've got trees. Lighter turquoise, you've got palms. In brown, you've got mammals, okay? And this graph is organized from the top left. You can hopefully see an icon of a baby. And at the bottom right, you've got an icon of an elderly person. So this graph is organized according to the chances that a species escapes from senescence on the top left, and in a continuum way, increases the forces of mortality and declines fertility as it grows older. And that's what it's meant by that old person icon. What you can see here is that there's a vast amount of variation in terms of the senescence trajectories. In fact, if we were to classify species according to black or white, do you undergo senescence or do you not undergo senescence? Do you escape from senescence? What we find in this study uh, with, there you go, 307 species, is that 160 escape from senescence and 147 undergo senescence, but they do so with different intensities. So with a quick overview using big data for demographics, you can see that a large amount of them, in fact, don't undergo senescence. Of course, in this graph, humans will be in the side that do undergo senescence. I've made the claim that we can not only classify species according to whether they undergo senescence or not, but we can also measure just how hard they undergo senescence. And this is the second time where I'm going to be talking about some mathematical algorithms. I think this is last time, by the way. So we can use a measure called Kifitis entropy to classify when individuals die from the moment that they are born until they die. You can picture on the y-axis a survival ship of a cohort of 100 individuals, okay? What we are measuring exactly is how quickly does that curve decline with age, from the age that the individuals become mature until, well, until what we call in demography the wall of death. The wall of death is the age at which, in a given cohort, 99% of the individuals have died. So because we start with 100 individuals, in this case, 99 individuals have died. Okay. What you can see is that there's overall, broadly speaking, three different types of curves of survivorship. Type 1, type 2, type 3. In type 1, most of the mortality events happen late in life. That's where you see the decline at the right-hand side. 
In type two, what you can see is that the loss of individuals, the rate of mortality is constant through time. And in type three, what you can see is that the curve actually plateaus. So as you get older, you're less likely to die. So the division between type two looking up and type two looking down helps us understand how strongly do you senesce or how strongly can you actually escape from senescence. And that's the measurements that we obtain from this measure of entropy, Kifitz's entropy, correspond to a H value of minus one equals to one or greater than one if the species senescence has negligible senescence, that is, the performance is flat with H, or if it escapes from senescence respectively. We can apply this measure, Kifitz's entropy, across the tree of life now. Okay, so we have got the information for different biological and taxonomic classes. So on the bottom, you've got Actinopterygii, those are bony fish. You've got Anthozoa, those are corals. You've got Psychodophyta, those are cycads. Pinopsida, those are pine trees. They're broadly categorized according to whether they belong to the animal kingdom in blue or to the plant kingdom in green. And there are groups according to those classes, right? So if the bar crosses over the one line and it's significantly at both, then it means that that specific taxonomic group overall escapes from senescence. And if it's below, it undergoes or it evolves senescence. Let me show you some of those examples. So bony fish, birds, clams, insects, and mammals to which we humans belong have a strong propensity towards undergoing senescence. As do so flowering plants like Magnoliopsida. There are other groups, for instance, like sponges and reptiles, which belong to the animal kingdom, as you know, and three other groups of the plant propensity to either have negligible senescence or to escape from senescence altogether. So in our exploration of what are the main drivers of senescence, one of the new hypotheses was, well, animals undergo senescence, plants don't. And what this graph shows is that it's, it's not that clear cut. There are some examples of animals that uh, escape from senescence, and there are some examples of plants that do undergo senescence. So it must be something different. Shall we continue walking through some of the mechanisms then? One of the most pervasive um, theories in demography and in life history theory is that of the fast, slow continuum. The fast, slow continuum, which is a theory put forward first by Steve Stern, states that individuals allocate into reproduction or maintenance of themselves in a really well tight and orchestrated trade-off. So a trade-off is a budgetary compromise. So you've got a fixed pot of energy and no more than that, and you choose to either allocate everything to reproduction, everything to maintenance, or somewhere in the middle. How much you allocate to each of those functions structures a continuum. There are some species like C. elegans on the top left that allocates mostly to reproduction, very little to maintenance. There are some other species, like the one on the top right, hunter-gatherers and other human populations, where most of the allocation of resources is into maintenance, and there are species in between. 
Uh, a colleague of mine showed that if you understand where species are ranked across this continuum, which can be used through a proxy called generation time, I'll define that in a second, you can predict whether the species has a high rate of senescence on the y-axis or not. So a species with a high generation time would be one that takes a long time to replace itself. So creatures like sequoias, creatures like the bristlecone pine in, um, in the Dead Valley in the U.S., which, for instance, has a life expectancy, a maximum life expectancy of over 5,000 years. Creatures like the Nile crocodile, and to a lesser extent, creatures like you and me, humans, tend to have a middle or a really high generation time. Creatures like sea elegans or fruit flies, bacteria, might have a short generation time. So species with a short generation time undergo senescence much faster than species with a long generation time. And you've got some depiction there of the species that my colleague looked at. You've got and some really cute non-human animals as well. Well, I was really interested in evaluating whether the fast low continuum also applies to the plant kingdom. As you know, the plant kingdom is another really diverse group of organisms, and they deserve just as much attention in terms of our understanding of their biology as do humans and other non-human animals. So again, we've got a lot of information for the demographies of hundreds if not thousands of plant species. We can derive from this demographic information, information about generation time, information about allocations into longevity, like the rate of senescence or the time at which individuals first become adults. We can classify different moments of reproduction. We can uh, explicitly look at how much individuals reproduce every time that they reproduce. So do you have one offspring or a thousand? We can evaluate the degree or the frequency of reproduction. That's the degree of heteroparity. So some species reproduce just once and then they die. Other species reproduce quite a few times before they die. We can evaluate the net reproductive output, which is the expected number of offspring to a given mother throughout her lifetime. And we can also evaluate the reproductive window, which is how long can you actually remain reproductively active. And because we're also measuring plants where size is a really good predictor of survival and reproduction, we evaluated the rate of growth of each individual in the natural population, as well as the rate of shrinkage. And before I proceed, I want to take a second to explain what I mean by the rate of shrinkage. I, I would assume that the audience that I'm speaking with today might not think about how important size or loss of size is for the fitness of an individual. Okay. Well, shrinkage, that is the loss in biomass through time, happens quite frequently in not just the plant kingdom, also in the animal kingdom. For instance, there was a paper published in Nature a decade ago that evaluated changes in size in the Galapagos Island iguana. It's been shown that the years following a La Nina event, iguana individuals that decrease in size have a higher chance of survival. If you know anything about climate change and La Nina in that part of the world, you'll know that when a Nina event happens, less food is available. Okay. So what the researchers were able to find to find and what made this paper a nature paper was the coupling of the fact that individuals that decrease in size more 
had a higher chance of survival. They got to live longer. They postponed the onset of senescence as well. So obviously, you don't tend to think about shrinkage in humans other than when we go on a diet, right? But the type of diet, quote unquote, that these iguanas are able to undergo is quite drastic. The ways in which size were measured in these iguanas is the length from the snout, that's the tip of the of the face of the, the of the reptile, until the cloaca. That's the organ that allows them to both defecate and have sexual intercourse. What the authors were able to measure is that that distance and show that some individuals were shrinking by 20% in that length. Now, can you imagine what it would mean for you to get 20% shorter from one year to the next? Let that sink in for a second. How do you do that? The ways in which, in which these iguanas were undergoing shrinkage is by literally eating themselves inside. They um, were exposed to low resources because of La Nina then, and they started to resor to resorb the calcium that had been stored in their bones to, in order to be able to survive till the next year. So one of the ways in which you can live longer is if you decrease in size. So in the plant kingdom, that also happens. Evaluate whether understanding shrinkage can deviate predictions from the fast low continuum and the importance of generation time for senescence. Imagine that you have a data set whereby you have got um, a lot of rows. The rows could be maybe information about human individuals, okay? And the columns could be different variables. So you could have anything that you look at maybe in blood samples, concentration of oxygen. It could be any biometric information about each human individual, okay? You've got a, a data set that contains a thousand individual human records and then 10 variables. You might suspect that a lot of those variables might be correlated against each other in such a way that if you want to understand what makes an individual healthy or unhealthy, you ought to reduce all of that rich data. Well, that's what a PCA does. A principal component analysis is a statistical way, a multivariate way to reduce dimensions in a data set. Okay, so just like the example that I gave you in humans, here we've got a lot of different moments for demographic performance in plants. Okay, so the first question was, let's see if we can reduce that. According to the fast low continuum, if we did, you should find a single axis of variation where everything that has to do with investing on reproduction, which in this graph is depicted in red, will be to one side. So you allocate a lot to reproduction and everything that is related to survival, which is in gray and in black, that black is generation time, by the way, will be to one side. Such a way that individuals or populations, in this case, each point is one species, will have to trade off against each other. And only one axis will be important. Okay, That axis is what we call before the fast flow continuum. And here, what you can see with plants, there's um, 410 different species here, by the way is that the data are a bit more dimensional, meaning the fast low continuum is not enough to explain the demographies of different plant species. There's something else going on in here. What you can find here is that little Greek symbol to the left in blue called gamma, that's growth. If individuals grow fast to the left, they don't live long, which is the value of uh, generation time to the right. Okay, there's a trade-off there. That's the, the fast low continuum. But every single moment of reproduction in the plant kingdom is decoupled, is independent, or as we call it in statistics, orthogonal to how long you live. 
every single arrow that is red has to do with different moments of reproduction, and they're running orthogonal from that, meaning that whether a plant undergoes senescence or not, it's probably not uh, dictated by these trade-offs. Okay, what you can see on the second axis is what we call the reproductive strategies axis, is that it absorbs 21% of that variance. And it forms a compromise between how long do you reproduce, species to the top reproduce for a long time, and how likely are you to undergo shrinkage? That's the Greek letter rho at the bottom. So just again to highlight, You've got individuals that grow very fast on the left or attain high generation times, and individuals that have got high moments of reproduction at the top or have the ability to decrease in size. And together, these two axes explain about or close to 60% of the variance. Now, we can measure through very simple mathematics how far away are the uh, orientations of generation time from different moments of reproduction. Okay, so here you've got the degree of heteroparity, F. Here you've got the net reproductive output, R0, which, by the way, is indeed the same term that epidemiologists use in reports of COVID-19. What you can see here is another study that I published a few years ago, in this case, 650 plant species. Again, these are um, organized according to the fast low continuum from left to right, and the reproductive strategies continuum from bottom to right, just as I showed you before. And what you can see is that on the third dimension, I'm plotting the forces of selection for or against mortality. So Hamilton forces of selection state that they can come in three different flavors. They can be constant with age. They can decline with age, resulting in species undergoing senescence. That corresponds to a negative slope, so uh, a, a dark color, a black color on that graph to the right. Or it can increase with age, therefore selecting for species that don't ever undergo senescence. This decoupling that I mentioned before between the fast low continuum not trading off with reproductive strategies is necessary to predict whether a plant species will undergo senescence towards the bottom left in black or will escape from it in yellow points. Just like we can do that for quite a few plant species, we can and we have also done that for animal species, including uh, humans. In case you're wondering, you human are here in the pink dots. So you tend to live relatively long and you have somewhat uh, narrow windows of opportunity for reproduction compared to other organisms, both animals and very specifically also to plants. Um, that slide is actually updated, outdated. It says that this manuscript is in preparation. It was, it was published last year in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And in it, what we show is that just like it happens with plants, to understand the demographies of different animals, humans included, you need to understand their fast low continuum attributions and also how frequently do they reproduce. Okay, so we know that the investments and the trade-offs are important to understand senescence. Another natural question that you might want to ask is, okay, so if a species that is really closely related to me undergoes senescence, am I also likely to undergo senescence? And the answer is no, by the way. So in this paper currently in review at Ecology Letters, what we did is we evaluated whether the species underwent senescence for mortality in red, whether they had a constant rate of mortality with age in yellow, 
or whether they escape from senescence, that is a declining mortality with age in blue. And we've done this exercise for vertebrates and for invertebrates. The expectation here was that the colors across this phylogeny, which is a way to depict graphically how closely related you are to another species, those colors in the outer ring should be clustered. That is, all the reds should be together, all the blues should be together, all the yellows should be together, but they are not. So phylogeny, our understanding of our sister species, is not a good mechanism, it's not a good mindset to predict senescence or its. We've also done the same analysis for plants, and the same thing is true. Senescence is not explained by phylogenetic distance to sister species within the animal or the plant kingdom. Then what, what, what explains that? So we talked about trade-offs. We know that some species undergo some really strong trade-offs, such that if you allocate a lot into reproduction in reds, you cannot allocate a lot into survival or generation time in gray. Those species would be you and me, the rest of the mammal uh, class, and some birds. We can estimate the arch that is the strength of that trade-off. We also know some other species like uh, flowering plants, insects, reptiles, and bony fish that have got a slightly more softened trade-off. So when you do this PCA analysis on this class, the decoupling is not full, but it's really not very strong. And there are other species like gymnosperms, and grasses where the decoupling is complete. You can invest a lot into survival and a lot into reproduction. We can then evaluate Kivitz's entropy, that measure, that mathematical measure of how likely you are to escape or to undergo senescence. To remind you, if you're to the left of one, you undergo senescence. If you're to the right of one, you escape from senescence. So understanding how species suffer or benefit from the lack of trade-offs is key. It's a key predictor to understand aging. There was indeed a paper put together by some, some of my collaborators in, in the Max Planck that was calling for a more mechanistic understanding of senescence. We now know that senescence is not universal. Okay, what's the next thing is, well, why do some species escape from it? Where are they found both around the globe and across the tree of life, and what makes them special? Is there something that we can learn from them? I'm gonna expose you again, I'm gonna keep on pushing you guys to think about plants for a second. The founding father of modern plants ecology, John Harper, once said that plants are waiting out there, waiting to be counted. And counting, by the way, is the bread and butter of demography to which I will take the license if I'm allowed to add and many other less charismatic species like fungi, insects also within the animal kingdom and the list continues. So I'm not gonna talk about the second angle here in the interest of time, but I do want to talk about molecular mechanisms. So I won't talk about long-term individual records, but I will talk if I may in the following minutes to you guys about some of the molecular underpinnings. Through this exercise with big data, we've been able to identify and isolate some likely candidates around this periphery of cloud of data of species that have got quote unquote odd demographic behaviors. 
if you remember, humans were more or less in the center, but there are a wealth of species that are situated around that cloud of what's possible demographically across the tree of life. We've got some carnivorous plant species, we've got some orchids and other desert plants, we've got some corals and sponges that we're currently studying in the Great Coral Reef in Australia. We've got some, um, some birds that spend most of their lives, who knows where, out in the sea and they live for a very long time. So I'm going to talk to you about another plant species called Cystus albidus, or the Mediterranean rosebuds. This is a plant that is found across the uh, western end of the Mediterranean basin. I've been following population dynamics of about 600 individuals of this endemic plant species nearby Barcelona and this rather dramatic landscape called Montserrat Mountain National Park. Specifically, what I was interested in was to test the hypothesis of mutation accumulation. Okay, I'll remind you, mutation accumulation is one of the main theories of senescence. And what it states is that you undergo senescence, you become more decrepit, your vital functions go down with age because you're stuck with deleterious mutations, negative mutations. Okay, one of the ways with which some organisms like long-lived plants can get rid of mutated tissue is by shedding parts of their anatomy. Obviously, not that I'm going to do this, by the way, but if I cut your arm, say that your right arm is full of mutations, which is compromising your performance as the whole individual that you are, if I cut it and I don't take it immediately, I don't take you immediately to the hospital, you will die. However, that ability to cut modules and continue living it's quite common in other creatures. Reptiles can do this. Plants do that as well very often. So what I was interested in, in experimenting with is what happens if I cut off modules of plants and then I continue tracking them through time. Will plants that have undergo forced shedding of modules in the bottom row indicated with the scissor have a higher rate of performance and lower rate of senescence. Similarly, and also inspired by Aristotle's work, I wanted to test how likely you are to escape or to undergo senescence if I give you less or more resources. So calorie restriction. Now, obviously, I cannot physically put a plant on a diet in the field and do um, sampling of it in an easy way. It's impossible to extract nutrients and minerals with the soil without destroying the root system and therefore compromising the demography of the individual. So instead of extracting resources to put the plant on a diet, what I did is I gave it more resources. And in this ecosystem, the resource that limits the growth of the plant is phosphorus. This is a phosphorus depleted soil. So I gave 200 individuals of the, of the population pockets of phosphorus so that they could uptake them from the resources of the, of the roots. And the expectation in this case is that by virtue of having more resources, they will live longer, sorry, they will live faster, and they will senesce faster as well. For each of these 600 individuals starting in 2014, and still ongoing, by the way, despite COVID, we've been measuring the biochemical activity of its performance, we've been measuring the physiological activity of its performance, and we've been measuring different rates of the demography of the individuals, survival, growth, the probability that each year they reproduce, if they reproduce, how many seeds do they produce, 
if the seeds are produced, are how many embryos within each seeds? Are the embryos viable? Can they germinate? And do they recruit? So um, just to give you the shorts of it, it's really hard work. And it's work that happens in the summer under a really hot Spanish sun of close to sometimes 40 Celsius degrees. For each of these individuals, we have got records of age. And the ways with which we can do that is by taking dendroecological measurements. So as you know, some trees have the ability to um, keep a record of how much they're growing every year with the, with the rings. So in an ad hoc study, at the end of the study, we can take a subset of the individuals, age them, counting the rings, and associate what we had measured before to how old they were. Okay. So what you're going to see here is for each of the functions, biochemistry, physiology, and demography, whether the functions decline with age, that will be represented with an old person icon in red, whether the functions remain constant with age, and that's represented with a black icon of a medium-aged woman, and whether the functions, the vitality of those functions improve with age, and that's what we call negative senescence. And that's represented with a green icon of a baby. So what you can see here is that for the control individuals to which we did nothing, we merely follow them through time. Some functions do decline with age. Some functions stay the same. And some functions improve with age, such as the probability of reproduction and the number of seeds produced, produced in each flower. Contrast that with what happens to individuals for which we had forced shedding. Okay, so these were individuals where I cut a third of the stems and I just waited for them to regrow them again. What you can see here is that the probability of undergoing senescence goes down. So these are more likely to either have negligible or in some cases, negative senescence. And last but not least, the individuals to which we gave additional resources, we had expected that they will undergo senescence faster. But what we found, in fact, is that they don't, they were happier, they tended to have an increase in vitality in many functions that the control individuals did not. What was interesting to me from, from, from this analysis is that depending on what level of biological organization, the biochemistry, the physiology, or the demography, the signatures could be decoupled. You could be undergoing senescence at one level, but not the other. And we would have expected for the different levels of biological organization to be coupled one after the other, such that the processes will upscale from physio, sorry, from biochemistry to physio to demo, as theory predicts. We don't find that. And talking about modularity, I want you to think about plants and many other organisms as like a pile of straws. The main function of a plant, such as this one, hopefully you can see that. So Bio 101, the way a plant works is it takes water and nutrients from the soil, it transports them in the vasculature, you can think about them in terms of arteries, to the leaves. In the leaves, the nutrients, the water will be uh, uh, transformed into carbohydrates with the help of energy coming from the sun, and oxygen, which is then reduced to CO2, right? Okay, the ways in which those nutrients are transported from the ground up to the leaves is through a collection of pipes. 
So a plant is nothing but a collection of pipes from which the leaves are sucking to take those resources up. One of the things that we know is that different plants and different animals as well can have an ability to act more or less independently. So you can suck from one straw, but not from the other. The independence between those straws results in a higher degree of modularity. And the expectation here is that organisms that behave more independently may be able to shed modules and may be able to optimize aging trajectories. Okay, so we tested this hypothesis. We've got ways to assign a degree of modularity mainly by taking a cross-section of the plant or the animal and looking at how independent different modules within it are. We can then, for the same species, estimate the rates of senescence. And the short of it is that we found that plants that are more modular, plants that have got a higher degree of internal independence, escape from senescence, likely driven through the ability to shed modules, to shed units of their anatomy when things get ugly. We tried to do the same thing in, in, in animals and we failed miserably. We didn't find any signature there. Uh, I've got some ideas as to why that could have happened and why, but in the interest of time, I'm just gonna skip through this. I'm just gonna bring up your attention to the fact that a lot of creatures that perhaps you don't think about in terms of being closely related to humans are in fact in the animal kingdom, sponges and uh, corals, and also insects, some of which are colonial. And in fact, what they represent is just a collection of different units that are tightly synchronized. It's been shown that insects, by the way, that have a strong sense of sociality, that build colonies, live longer than insects of the same ecological conditions that don't, that are completely in isolation. So the sense of society, the sense of community, the sense of integration is likely a cause that should be explored further if we are to prolong lifespan and uh, health span within human populations. I'm just gonna move through this. I'm gonna showcase the fact that we've got a lot of different creatures that we're looking at, doing field work in South Africa, doing field work here in Oxford, looking at calorie restriction with uh, flatworms on the top left, and going to really exotic places like uh, Australia to evaluate the role of modularity on senescence. Take a message from, it, from this talk just to, to, to close it up. Senescence is not common. In fact, I'll argue is the exception. It's just that most of the high quality data that we have is based on animals like us, where senescence is a thing. So in order to understand why and how you undergo senescence, we need to look at how organisms allocate resources into survival and reproduction. Understanding the biochemistry is ultimately the, the holy grail of aging research and very little research has been uh, inflicted or performed at the interface between biochemistry and the demography of the species. So more should be, should be uh, implemented. And as I showed in the last part of this talk, senescence is really multifaceted. It is controlled through genetics. It's also controlled through the environment. A key question here is understanding to what extent one can win over the other. In what conditions is the genetics more important than the environment? When we know that, and only when we know that, will we be able to deliver the benefits of aging research to human societies. On that, I'd like to conclude. So thank you for your time, and I'll be very happy to take questions.